Well, uh, a year ago today, uh, we had our, our good, or excuse me, our Palm Sunday communion service. And as you see, the sanctuary holds like 400 people. We had 10 chairs. It took us three and a half hours to do communion. And the entire world came out because apparently we were super spreaders and we were going to kill the entire planet. <laughs> we have a death rate in the county with a survival rate. That, that, that it's, it, we have a survival rate 99.87%. Okay, I'm clapping. I'm I'm sad for the, what, 13.13 of 1%. But what I'm really sad about is the fact that we have devastated our community. The survival rate is 99%, but for anyone relatively healthy under the age of 65, it's almost 100%. Lockdowns have caused more deaths than covid in relation to suicide, depression, loneliness, drug and alcohol addiction, joblessness, poverty, and stress. We have the highest opioid deaths in a 12-month recorded period in American history in this past year. The lockdowns have destroyed our economy, and we were all told that we were going to kill grandma and grandpa. Now, folks died, don't get me wrong, but I can tell you right now, the, the grandmas and the grandpas I've met, they don't see why this lockdown is necessary because they care about their kids and their grandkids and they have destroyed the future for many of them. They've lost their businesses, their job, their home. The abused have been quarantined with their abusers. Grandparents don't want joblessness for their grandkids. They don't want hopelessness for their grandkids. They don't want homelessness for their grandkids. They want them to prosper. You contrast what California did in relation to Florida. I had the privilege, my wife and I, to meet Governor DeSantis. I have Governor Envy. (laughs) Governor DeSantis, in contrast to Governor Mussolini, (laughs) it's catching on, by the way. He's America's hero governor. And by the way, I, I, I took many of these statistics and I'm blessed by an amazing um, news source, Citizens Journal, as well as the Guardian newspaper uh, that, that keep the citizens of our community up to speed and up to date. <laughs> Governor DeSantis stood strong in the face of massive pressure to close the state, close the economy, lock down the people, order mask mandates. He refused. He kept Florida open for business. And here are the amazing results. Florida's economy is booming. People are happy. The quality of life is high and very few are sick. It worked. Even though Florida has been wide open for almost a year now without masks, even though Florida has millions of retired senior citizens, it has the highest median age of any state in the union, Florida still has less deaths and hospitalizations than any of our Democrat-run states, the authority, uh, authoritarian tyrannical, dictatorial Democrat governors. Florida's numbers are better than New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California, Michigan, Illinois, and any other one of these states that has these dictatorial governors. And so Ron DeSantis deserves credit for that. I say all that because a year ago, when we, on this day a year ago, we had our communion service. We didn't know the severity of the virus. We honored CDC rules. It took us three and a half hours to do communion. The sanctuary holds over 400. We had 10 chairs. We sprayed everything down. We all wore masks. We did the whole dog and pony show. The press came out. They said it was the cleanest place in Ventura County. And, And then on Easter, we were still honoring the state at Easter. And this is what Easter looked like. That was my family in the front row. Okay, there's the picture. There's your evidence. Put them in jail. But then May 31st, after we had seen the riots and the 75% of the businesses that were burned and looted were Jewish owned and targeted, and the governor praised them and they were shoulder to shoulder with no masks, and we had, what, at that time over 10 doctors that had shared on our live stream, we had done the work, we, we knew what the virus was dealing with, we knew it. And so we lifted the mask mandate and, and the social distancing, and I, I just said at that point, Our First Amendment rights are still intact, have always been. Whether the governor says so or not, we're accountable to God. Those are inalienable rights given to us by our creator, not by the government. And so we opened the church wide open May 31st, and that's all we have to say about that. Now, 
Thank you. Now, I'm not, I'm not the mask police. And, and we, we don't get upset with anyone who's wearing a mask. You're welcome to wear a mask. And for some of you, it's, it's wise. And the mask protects you. I, I'm okay. I'm, I'm ready to go. And, and, I, and I know that as we see, and we saw this in The Guardian and The Citizen's Journal, that there's been an increase in the population as happens every year. And if you look at the increase in population and combine that with the death rate, the death rate hasn't changed. All they did is move influenza A, influenza B, pneumonia, heart, everything into that category and called it COVID. Now I say that because at this point, we're watching as police officials are now going into churches and shuttering them. And I just watched a church in Calgary with, it struck me as an Eastern European pastor. He had a thick accent and that man, ooh, fearless, spine of steel. He just said, get out, get out. You don't have a search warrant, leave. Yeah, and he started calling them Nazis. I'm like, dude. We have freedom to worship and we always will. And you can label us and, and gaslight us and tell us that we're killing grandma and grandpa, but as we start to see the data, we realize this is a gimmick. And now you want to do passports and you want to limit our freedom to travel. And, and this is what you're doing. And so we come to this place, as we said on Good Friday, there's two authorities. There's man and there's God. And if man violates the laws of nature, nature's God and the inalienable rights that we've been given by our creator, it is our right and our duty to push back and say, no, that's not going to happen. And so thus, we're here freely worshiping. We put our life and our health in the hands of God. We are not super spreaders. You can't justify the data. And all those elected officials who have devastated our county will face that judgment because Americans are rising up and saying, God is on the throne and no one stifles the worship of his people ever, period. And that's the truth. Amen. Amen. I love being the pastor of this fellowship. I'm in a room with fearless men and women, and their children are fearless. And grandparents. You go, girl. Amen. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And when she says grandparents, those are the ones that face the, I mean, we, we still broadcast out in the parking lot. You're welcome to go out there. We're live streaming. YouTube might take us off today, but we're, we're live streaming. <laughs> And, and when, when you come here, you, you are saying before God Almighty, I, look, a virus will do what a virus does. The most protected human being on the planet, the President of the United States, you couldn't go into his presence without having the PCR thing stuck way up your nose and tickling your brain. And yet he still contracted it. Because a virus will do what a virus does. And, and, the, and the greatest immunity is community. We build that immunity. And now they're giving, I don't know, I want to go into the vaccine. <laughs> That's for sure shut down, Bill. So let's get to the message, shall we? As I was preparing the message, my kids, uh, sweet as they are, they're telling me, Dad, you gotta include this, you gotta include that. There's so many new people in the church, and I know you've told the story before, but tell it again, because some folks haven't heard it. And so bear with me, folks who've been uh, with me for 20 years, you've heard this story. 20,000 times, but I'm going to share it again and it'll be part of the message. And if you don't like it, blame my kids. <laughs> but before I get into that, I, I want to share with you, I was intrigued as I was traveling. I started watching National Geographic Channel and I was moved by it. And, and I started to see the connection uh, and the similarity. I, I, I was learning about a man named George Herbert. George Herbert was the high steward of Newberry, spelled N-E-W-B-U-R-Y. It's an interesting name. We live in Newberry Park. You would think it's N-E-W-B-E-R-R-Y, but it's Newberry. I don't know who speaks that way, Newberry. And you think, where'd you get that name? Well, it actually comes from Newberry, England, which is about an hour's drive from London. It's a resplendent area, resplendent, great English word, resplendent. 
It's a resplendent area known for racehorses. And this man, George Herbert, was the high steward of Newbury, which is basically high steward is the mayor of Newbury. And I thought, I was kind of the mayor of Newbury. Until <laughs> I resigned a year ago. And the, the, the mayor of Newbury, the high steward, he was also the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. Carnarvon. Fifth Earl. He was royalty. Interesting guy. He, um, he was into race cars and race horses, obviously being from Newbury. Here's, here's, so you can see, there's Newbury, there's London. It's, it's an hour from London. Lord Carnarvon, he married Almina Wombwell, who was the illegitimate daughter of millionaire banker Alfred de Rothschild, of the Rothschild family, at St. Margaret's Church, Westminster, on the 26th of June, 1895. The Rothschilds provided a marriage settlement of 500,000 pounds. That's a lot at the turn of the century. And it paid off all of Lord Carnarvon's existing debt. My wife is the illegitimate daughter of a... No, I'm just kidding you. It's, uh, <laughs> the connection stops there. Yeah, and my father-in-law is not the Rothschilds. <laughs> right, Tom? Okay, where were we? I still have debt. No, I'm kidding. But, but this man... See, what happens with these lords is they inherit through the first male the estate. And then the government taxes it and you have half of the wealth and so you have to sell your furniture and then you have an empty estate and then you gotta figure out some way to make money. And then when you transfer it to your you know, next oldest child and they just whittle it down until you can't afford it anymore and then it returns to the state. And as Margaret Thatcher said, socialism works until you run out of the other person's money. And Lord Carnarvon was running out of money and he, he thought, I hear rumor, and he said, Rothschild's got some banks, so I'm going to marry that gal, and then I'm going to tell everyone, and then he said, hey, well, here's $500,000, and so, well, 500000 sterling, which is probably six hundred, yeah, but back then, that was a chunk of change. You look at inflation, it was millions of dollars, and he pays off his debt, and he was into race cars, and, and, and as a man who was into race cars, in 1903, he got in a terrible car accident. And he had also been sickly as a child, so his body was racked. And the winters in England are cold, so he would go to Egypt uh, in, the, in the winters because his doctor said you need to go to warm climate. So he went to Egypt to winter there with his wife and his daughter. And he became kind of an amateur Egyptologist because at the time they were doing digs. And so with the money he had, he decided to hire a man by the name of Howard Carter Howard Carter was an archaeologist. He would dig, and he paid him to find in the Valley of Kings a tomb that hadn't been discovered yet. And Howard Carter was paid by uh, Lord Carnarvon to dig for something. And he started digging, and then World War II hit, excuse me, World War I hit, and 1917, they just shut it down, and everyone went to war. And all the digs and the archaeological excavations ended. And then at the conclusion of the war, Howard Carter went back to digging with the support, the financial support of Lord Carnarvon. And in November of 1922, I think it was November 4th of 1922, Howard Carter um, had removed the workers' huts because they had dug everywhere, and he thought, well, let's just dig where the huts are. So they removed the huts, and a, a young um, Muslim boy as he was removing the tent, found a step underneath some rocks. And that was 10 years from the point that Howard Carter had begun digging, and he looks at that step and he starts to cry. He realizes 10 years ago he was 18 inches from that step, and he had missed it. 10 years of his life were wasted, and as he begins to excavate this step, uh, he, he realizes he's found something, so he calls Lord Carnarvon, he says, you need to come out. And Lord Carnarvon comes out, but his wife stays behind. She wasn't feeling well, so he brings his 21-year-old daughter, Evelyn. And Evelyn comes with her dad. They find the step. They see the inscription on the walls. And they have come to realize that they discovered, on November 4th, 1922, King Tut's tomb. Carnarvon 
Howard Carter and Evelyn are the first three people to see this tomb in thousands and thousands of years. The first one to see it was obviously Howard Carter. He shined the light in there. They said, what do you see? He said, beautiful things. At which point he then goes and begins to weep, realizing he had wasted 10 years of his life. But then they were going to seal it and open it to the public. But late that night after Lord Carnarvon and his daughter Evelyn had arrived, they secretly went into the chambers and they were the first three to completely view the interior of the chambers. Unlike every other tomb that had been excavated, this one was filled to capacity with shimmering gold objects. Worth in today's dollars, 25 million. You had antechambers, you had chambers, you, 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 you had all of this. And, and as Howard Carter excavated it, he realized that it had been broken into twice. The first time, a theft had occurred by those who were filling the, the tomb and they had taken some things and then they filled the shaft with rock and debris and Howard Carter realized that that debris had been removed and other robbers had broken through the antechamber and had been interrupted in their theft because as they were exiting the, the shaft, they realized that they had left behind a bag that was filled with jewelry items they were attempting to steal. And they tried to cover their tracks and put all of the debris back. But then uh, um, a, a rainstorm came and a flash flood and it filled the shaft with more debris never to be seen for thousands and thousands of years and its location lost to mankind until Howard Carter, through the assistance of this Muslim boy, found that first step that he had only been 18 inches from prior, 10 years earlier. And as they went through this tomb filled to the rafters with shiny objects, they found things like golden sandals. I'm walking on sunshine. <laughs> he had, they had these on the toes of the mummy. This was the slipper that they put on his immortal body. Each toe would fit in the golden slipper. They didn't want him to be bored while he was waiting the afterlife, so they gave him some games, Monopoly, Cribbage, I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> they didn't want him to die of hunger, so they had entombed ducks. They had taken whole ducks, cooked them, and placed them in these chambers. They had all kinds of food awaiting him when he had awakened. Well, I'm hungry. Apparently he ate it because it was empty. One of the coolest things, and I remember seeing this as a child because the uh, Tutankhamun, the King Tut display came to Los Angeles. My parents and I, as a young boy, we drove all the way to La Brea where they were hosting the exhibit and I saw these things and this was the one that intrigued me the most. This was an alabaster uh, jar created in King Tut's image that held his heart. I'm like, <laughs> that's really cool and creepy. <laughs> and they held his heart inside that alabaster jar. His, his remains were there, encased in gold, layer after layer of each casket. And this was one of the most fascinating things to me, still existing after thousands and thousands of years, his linen gloves. And you're like, wow, that is fantastic. Linen gloves. And you're like, try to put those on, it's like, Poof. They still have a chair. They didn't have chairs back then. They made him a chair. It still exists. It's removing... The, the wax that was on it, trying to preserve it. They were trying to, you know, fight time and they were able to preserve it. It was a chair he sat in, thousands and thousands of years old. And that fit the hand of a king. They were overwhelmed. They were so excited. They were blessed beyond measure. And fascinatingly enough, as they looked in and they were the first three to witness and open this tomb after thousands of years and they saw it just filled to the rafters with golden objects and works of antiquity that measured $25 million back in 1922, Lord Carnarvon was beside himself. And as they examined the remains, they realized that King Tut had died of COVID-1. <laughs> I'm joking. Kind of. Lord Carnarvon being one of the first in, they said that there was a curse on the tomb, which isn't true. He actually had gotten a mosquito bite uh, a few months following the excavation and he was shaving and he, he cut it with probably a dirty razor. He got streptococcal infection 
And he was compromised to begin with, so he died, I think, of COVID-2. I'll stop now. No, but he actually got a streptococcal infection, and, and though the tomb was open uh, November 4th, 1922, he died, ready for this? He died April 5th, today's the 4th. He died April 5th, 1923, less than a year after opening the tomb. Howard Carter wouldn't be able to receive uh, the gold that he had discovered. It went to the Egyptian um, Department of Antiquities. I think he got $15,000 as an inheritance or $25,000 sterling as an inheritance for his family, which wasn't much. All his life's work, it cost him over 500000 U.S. just to provide his time. Even though Lord Carnivon paid for most of it, he still incurred debt. And you think about this, they found a tomb filled the capacity with so many riches and it was as though their life just came to a screeching halt. I imagine Lord Carnivon would give up everything to still be alive. He was separated from his daughter Evelyn. He died of that streptococcal infection. I share all that because his whole life's work, 10 years of digging, a half a million dollars in expenses, 10 years of his life wasted. He was 18 inches from the first step. But he's the first one to put a, shine, a light in and shine it in. They say, what do you see? He says, wonderful things. He found a tomb that was filled and he was ecstatic. It brought joy. And that's about it. Temporary, fleeting, but it brought joy. And it was filled with rotting items. It'd be like you taking your wealth and somebody finding it thousands of years from now. And they're intrigued. But really, are they useful? No. You can view, visit them in a museum, see how people lived in times of antiquity, but for the most part, it's just rotting stuff. It's like you dug in, in the dump site. And really, that, that's, that, that'd be a fascinating place to go with Harrison and Sons, and you go where they dump all the stuff and the things that you had to have that were so critical to you, you're gonna find it in the dump five years from now. I mean, how many pet rocks are in the dump? <laughs> Cabbage patch dolls. I had to have it. You stood in line. And you think to yourself so stupid. All the money we've spent on junk. Not unlike King Tut. Oh, interestingly enough, next to King Tut were two other sarcophagus. Sarcophagi, I don't know how to pronounce it. For his stillborn children. He obviously had some struggles in life. He was a, a boy king. We don't know why the children were buried. Maybe it was his siblings or maybe it was his stillborn children. His body and his remains were still there. They've uncovered it. I mean, he is just, just you know, Fire Marshal Bill. <laughs> Skin's still on, but he's just, it doesn't seem to be working. <laughs> he has something in common with everyone in the room right now. Death awaits. You can't beat death. Your tomb is going to be full. Your remains will be there, unless, of course, you're cremated. Remains are somewhere. You just don't leave anything for anyone to discover later. We all have this in common. Time exists. For time to exist, there needs to be a beginning and an end. We live in a temporal world. The clock's ticking. The young people think they'll live forever. And a lot of them, after this past year of misery, don't want to. Highest number of teen suicides in a long time. Child abuse in our county is over 300% this last year. This has been a horrible year. And I, I, I think about what they found in that tomb, it was full. It brought fleeting joy, but then it did nothing beyond that. And you contrast that with the passage that I, I want us to study. You don't need to open your Bibles. I'll put the passage up on the screen for the sake of time. But I want to share with you the very first eyewitness of a tomb that was opened. This one hadn't been sealed for thousands of years. This one was sealed for three days. And the very first one to look in was Mary. John 20 records, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping and she wept. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. She thought he was the gardener, Jesus. I'm serious, look at the passage. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She's supposing him to be the gardener. That's in scripture. Said to him, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni? Which is to say, teacher? She, she was the first to examine the tomb. And unlike Howard Carter and Lord Carnivon, when she looked in, there were no riches. There was a linen cloth that had been neatly folded. Young people, pay attention. Clean your room. (laughs) Jesus got up and he folded his clothes. True story. Read it on your own. Mary became the first witness to the greatest miracle to ever take place. She was the first witness of the resurrection. You see, tombs are made for dead people. Our God is alive. He's risen. He has risen. There we go. You'll catch on if you're new. Try to imagine the scene. She's, she's standing outside the tomb. She sees that the stone has been rolled away and, and a feat for no human ability. I mean, this is, this is a stone that weighs tons. She's weeping, she's sobbing. She was at a distance when they brutally beat the Lord. They whipped him with a cat of nine tails, leather flat straps dipped in water, the ends of them with metal shards or glass that would slap the skin, the metal would dig, they'd rip the flesh out. 40 lashes with that vile weapon of pain. As his hands are tied around a post to stretch the skin on his back and with each lash, skin would be ripped off and blood would pour. Prior to the lashing, they tied his hands behind his back, put a a bag over his head and sucker punched him and said, prophesy who hit you. They mocked and ridiculed him. They crucified him. They put nails in his wrists and his feet, put a crown of thorns with three inch thorns into his skull. They pulled his beard out of his face. So silent was this lamb to the slaughter that that hardened centurion we studied on Friday was moved to declare truly he was the son of God. A man who had witnessed thousands of executions, who was hardened. But as he witnessed the earthquake and the rocks break, he thought the only thing harder than rocks is the human heart. And as the power of God would break those hearts, so many would still be as stone and cold to the things of God but not the centurion. He was moved to declare that he is the son of God. As Christ would have to pull himself up on those nails to breathe in because the death was done by asphyxiation, the only breath you could breathe was to pull yourself up in excruciating pain upon the nails that were through your wrist to take a breath of air. And to expedite the death, they would break the leg so you had nothing to push up on as you pulled with your arms and pushed with your pain-laden feet. And they'd break the legs as they did to the two thieves on either side of him. But when they came to the Lord, the centurion had witnessed his final words of the seven he would say upon the cross. The final word that he said was to telestai. In English, it translates, it is finished. Or better yet, paid in full. It would be the word that would go on a document. After your mortgage, the last payment goes in. To telestai, paid in full, house is yours. He says, to tell us die, and he gives up his spirit. He breathes his last. His lifeless corpse hanging as Joseph of Arimathea and his friends come 
and lovingly take him down from the cross and take him through a Jewish burial as they wash his body on the tahura, the washing stone. And in any Jewish burial as they're washing the corpse, they speak to them as though they're alive. Mr. Cohen, we're going to now wash your back and remove the shards of metal and glass. Mr. Cohen, we're going to wash your face of the spittle that is in your beard. But instead of saying Mr. Cohen as they would in a Jewish burial or a washing, a sacred washing, they're speaking to Jesus and tenderly caring for the king's body. And as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are both washing his body, you can imagine them thinking to themselves, he has been pierced for our transgressions. By his stripes, we've been healed as they're washing each and every one of those wounds. Jesus, we're going to comb your hair now. Jesus, we're going to wash your face. They did more for a dead Jesus than we do for a living one. They put their entire career on the line. Nicodemus, who was one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem, by the time he had publicly acknowledged his faith in Christ, he had lost everything. His daughter, who had had the most lavish wedding in the history of the city of Jerusalem, they found their family scouring through the stables trying to find lentil grains. Nicodemus would go on to England, so history tells us, to bring Christianity there. Many priests believed, as did many centurions, Nicodemus being the first of them. He would come to Jesus at night, but at this point he's no longer ashamed. There's, there's nothing that they can take that he hasn't already given because he has realized that Jesus is my king. And even in death I love him. And I will do whatever's necessary. And Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, gives his tomb. And they didn't expect to see a living savior, but they loved the one who had spoken truth and set them free. Like Mary and those who had followed and witnessed this beating and this brutality, she was crushed. She was weeping. She was sobbing. She was depressed and defeated. She stooped down and to multiply such heartache, not only had they brutalized her savior, but they had stolen his body. The tomb for her was the worst place ever. He's not there. You can imagine Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, all the work they'd put in for the preparation, and he's gone. They'd stolen him. But that all changed. You see, the elation of Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon with a tomb filled to the rafters with golden baubles and trinkets and rotting linen gloves paled in comparison to the riches of an empty tomb, the treasures of an empty tomb. And it came by one verse, one revelation that transformed the perspective of the very first eyewitness of the empty tomb as she looked in. And Mark records that. The angel said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. I laugh at that because that's a profound statement. The depression turned to joy by that simple verse. Hopelessness turned to hope. They'd taken away the sting of death by the words of the angel. It was a turning point. And where did it all take place? In an empty tomb. That's the, the treasure of an empty tomb. Every early Christian creed emphasizes the empty tomb. Jesus said, I will be crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day. The thing that sets Christianity apart from every religion in the world is the empty tomb. This is the most critical time in the Christian calendar. It's, it's more profound than, than Christmas. Because if the tomb was still filled with the remains as Tutankhamun's was, 
then we're just worshiping a mummy. He has no power. The thing we have in common, death, as the clock is ticking and the breaths remain. I don't know how many are still remaining for your lungs and how many beats are remaining for your heart, but the reality is death is the great equalizer and it doesn't matter if you have golden sandals, you will still die. And the question is, who can overcome death and what causes death? And the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. We, we have been living on his earth, breathing his air, drinking his water, and we're to live by his rules. A dying man longs to be saved on his deathbed, but very few men and women want to live under the authority during their lifetime. Men and women don't want to be ruled while they live, but they want to be saved when they're dying. And when we deny being ruled while we live by the God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand, who has created us and fashioned us in his image, it brings death and enslavement. And Christ has come to set the captives free. The empty tomb is the greatest hope for mankind. It is the most critical significance of Christianity. The tomb is of greatest importance because as long as the tomb is empty, it declares that our Savior is alive. He's alive and he's working and he's come to set the captives free. Mary looks into this empty tomb with this stone rolled away and she's deeply touched and moved. I love this song and I've never heard it played but I saw the lyrics and I was deeply moved. What is the power that can bring death to life? How can the darkness ever turn to light? How can a shattered heart be whole again and the dream you thought was over suddenly begin? Broken lives are mended just like new. That is the power of an empty tomb. It's the treasure of an empty tomb. Mary approached the tomb as the very first eyewitness of something that had been sealed not for 3,000 years but for three days. She was crushed and defeated. She was hopeless and weak. I think of the statement of this author who says, the great tragedy of our lives is that we live between the shame of our failures in the past and the fear of our future. forget the past. I try. That nagging voice of failure, sometimes it's whispered through the mouths of loved ones. <laughs> not my wife or my kids or, you know, but you, you, you have parents maybe, not, not my in-laws. <laughs> no, in all truthfulness, I, I would have married Michelle if, if she had the till of the hun as her parents. But I have the best in-laws on the, on the planet. If I could pick them, I would have picked them. They supported Michelle and I when we, we were pennies looking for change. But there are those voices in life that remind you. Some of you have had them. You're ugly and you're stupid. You'll never amount to anything. Nobody loves you. Nobody cares about you. Maybe it's classmates, adversaries. We live in a world that seeks to kill and destroy. It hurts. Some of you have had parents that have been so awful. And those voices ingrain in your head. And every time you fail, it emphasizes that they're right. And to get yourself lifted from the bed of depression and move forward in a life that seems to be getting darker and darker in a world that seems to be becoming so confining. You hear those voices. I've heard them. I'm 56 and they don't go away. And it angers me. I remember vividly one time in particular, I, was a, I wasn't even ordained yet. I, I was working at a church in San Jose. 
and I, I had had back surgery and I had just struggled and I wasn't reading my Bible and, and I, I was just empty inside. And I, I was asked that, that afternoon to stay in the offices as the remaining staff member in case anyone would drop in between four and five for a counseling appointment and two other people would remain, one being the receptionist, Tia, and he had to stay there and counsel if anyone dropped in who didn't have an appointment until the office hours were ended and everyone got to go home early and it was my circuit. And I remember being so empty and I was really questioning ministry and I thought, there's no room for me. I remember just saying to God, look, I get it, I, I don't belong here. Can we just get through this hour without me being exposed for the fraud I am? Can you save me from endangering anyone else's life by a life that doesn't match the message? And the phone rings. It's Tia. She said, there's someone here to counsel. And I'm thinking, you don't listen. <laughs> Seriously, you just, you, you don't care. I poured my heart out and there's somebody here. I have nothing to give them. I take the call. I put on a facade. I said, yeah, I'll be right up. I hung up the phone and I was angry at God. I walked to the front and there in the waiting section of our offices is a woman in this power business suit with a gold Rolex, manicured nails. Her hair was coiffed perfectly. She's on one of those tack phones, which in the 90s was the phone. A lot of you kids are going, what? cell phone amazing and she's on this thing and she's making money right there and she's oh I know it's probably a waste of time but somebody said go to a church okay look the pastor's here I have to go hangs up and she was there with her daughter that's what Tia had told me and I, I wouldn't have known it was her daughter because I couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl dressed in complete black hair dyed black eyeliner black lipstick black piercings black nail polish black clothing black short couldn't tell boy girl angry and the woman says hi listen my daughter I'm like thank you for reminding me my daughter it has been in a psych ward and we have to put her back in she's incorrigible those are so expensive and somebody said maybe a church would be of help so we brought her in can you do whatever you do I'm like, you know, on the outside, I'm like, oh yeah, sure, come on back, sweetie. Inside, I'm like, you're evil. I mean, I don't, I don't get you. And, and I go, come on back, and she doesn't move. And the mother says, get up. And they begin to cuss at each other. Oh my God, that's so, and finally the girl goes, this is so stupid. Go with the man. Cusses at her mother. We're walking to my office. She's behind me. It, it, it's, it's as though she's sucking the oxygen out of the room. It's like demonic presence. Just, I'm like, <laughs> we get into the office and she slumps in the chair. I leave the door open. She slumps in the chair. And at this point, honestly, I don't care about her. I, I'm, I'm, I'm done with God. I don't even want to be there. But I put on the facade. I go, hey, what's your name? She goes, none of your business. I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> and at that point, I'm going to use a Scottish word, I was pissed. <laughs> Look it up. Uh-oh, that's the authorities calling. <laughs> Did you use the word pissed again? <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> and, I, and I look at her and I go, hey, I don't want to be here any more than you do. Tell me your name, we'll exchange some niceties and you can go home. And she looks at me confused, she goes, my name's Raven. I'm like, the blackbird? <laughs> and I started kind of laughing and she's like, oh my God, this is so stupid. I go, Raven, I'm sorry I laugh, but I mean seriously, black, you know what I'm saying? I go, Raven. 
I'm going to tell you just one thing. You're going to be in a psych ward because this isn't going to be resolved here. And they're going to pump you full of all kinds of fun medications. And you're going to hear voices. And I want to help you distinguish these voices because I'm hearing all three of them now. There's God's voice. His voice is one that's come that you might have life and life everlasting. He loves you. He has every hair on your head numbered. He's come that you might have life and life more abundant. He left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross that you, you would be able to be set free. You've been created in his image. You want your life to flourish. He's for you, not against you. He's your advocate. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And then contrast that voice with another one you're going to hear. The author of lies. The father of lies. The devil. The one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants you dead because you've been created in the image of God. He's going to lie to you and tell you that you're going to get revenge on your family if you but take your life. He's not only going to devastate you and ruin you for all eternity, but he wants to take the rest of your family and impose upon them pain. He wants it to be about shame and guilt and misery and deception. He wants you to hurt yourself. He wants you to be angry. God says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, but he says take revenge. And those two voices you're going to be hearing, and there'll be a third voice, and it's your own, and you'll be a ping pong ball between the two. And I'm going to tell you one thing, because it's what I read today. There was a Syrophoenician woman with a demon-possessed daughter, and she worshiped the Lord, not with music, but with three words. She said, Lord, help me. Raven, when you're there, you call on the Lord. You say, Lord, help me. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And when you call on his name, he'll show you great and mighty things you know not of. And you say, Lord, help me, and he will. And better yet, say, Lord, save me. Because he's the only savior. He's the only one who's overcome sin and death. His word is true. And I said, Raven, I am in the middle of these right now. I'm struggling. But you do that and you'll be all right. And I prayed. And I was the only one in the room who said amen. And she said, are you finished yet? I said, yes. And she says, oh my God, what a waste of my time. She got up, she walked out. She's walking out angry. Her mother said, I knew this was a waste of time. Get in the car. And in that moment, depression and that voice that I told you about earlier enveloped me. You will never be a minister. You will never make a difference. Answer the phone. Let's turn them off now. You will never make a difference. I own this generation. I own the future. They're mine. That sent me into a tailspin like I can't even begin to tell you. I felt like Mary. Jesus was dead. They had shredded his body. They had beaten him. They had pulled his beard out of his face and now they stole his body. And all hope was lost. It's the same way that all of you have been battling this past year. As they've taken and taken and taken. And you're watching and you're wondering, will the future for my children be anything similar to what I had in the past? Is there hope? And at every turn, they take something else. But then, you look into a tomb and it's not filled with treasures. Instead, we find the treasure of an empty tomb. What Mary saw is what set her free. In the depression, I realized one of the most profound titles God has ever been given. I read a book by Alan Redpath, who happens to be the grandfather of our pastor, Craig Lindquist. He's an amazing author. He's gone to be with the Lord. But Alan Redpath wrote a book called The Making of a Man of God. And it was a study in the life of David. And he comes across the story of David and Goliath, how David takes on a nine-foot, ten-inch giant and the armies of the Philistines had encamped in territory that rightfully belonged to Judah. And as I read the story, I realized this wasn't a story on how to defeat a giant. It was a story on how content God's people were to allow Satan to occupy territory that rightfully belongs to God. I think that's where we all are right now. We bow to the authority of man at the expense of our honor to God. We allow ourselves to be enslaved because we're afraid. And every micro-tyranny enslaves us just a little bit more. We're afraid to stand. That giant is intimidating. 
He's nine feet, 10 inches tall. He's mocking us. He's paralyzed God's people with fear. The churches are shuttered. And one ruddy little boy comes down and he invokes three names for God. He calls him Jehovah. It's a tetragrammaton. It's the unpronounceable personal name of God and it's usually attributed and attached to one of his attributes. Jehovah Tzedekinu, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Rapha. And, and by invoking his name, what he's saying, God says, I am. I will be for you whatever you need when you need it. I am your God. I am your father. I am your creator. Call on me. I will show you great and mighty things you know not of. And what you need, I will give to you when you need it. And David walks down invoking the name of Jehovah. He then invokes another name. He says he's the Lord of hosts. Realizing that a third of the angels fell when Satan had rebelled against God, but two-thirds remained with the Lord. And one angel wiped out 187,000 Assyrians. And David knew that he wasn't going out on the battlefield as a ruddy little boy against a nine-foot, ten-inch giant covered from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet in, in bronze that was shimmering in the Middle Eastern sun. He was walking out surrounded by the angels of God. When he let that stone go from the sling, it wasn't going anywhere near Goliath's forehead, the only portion of his body that was exposed so he could see. He was scaled with, with, with bronze, nothing would penetrate. He lets that stone go, what are the odds? Astronomical, unless an angel grabs that stone. Michael, six wings. <laughs> the stone went that way I got it <laughs> David <laughs> he threw that stone on a run accuracy my foot and the angel grabs that thing it's not in the scriptures but I know it's there and just up speed. David's like, oh. And he had swore he'd take off the head of Goliath, so he runs over and he pulls the sword out of Goliath's sheath because all David had was a sling and can't go. He puts that sword over Goliath's neck, can't cut it, so he has to put it on the neck and jump up and down, break through that big neck bone, get through the entrails. <laughs> lifts that head up shaking blood dripping flies surrounding everyone sees it one man one man and God constitutes a majority David understood that the fight wasn't against David and Goliath the fight was against the Goliath and God because David understood the third title of the Lord He's the living God. The Philistines would bring their God out on a cart, Dagon. David knew my God is alive. I don't go out alone. That so inspired me and lifted me out of my depression. He brought life back to me. He forgave my past. He said, Rob, you can't forget, but I do. The Bible says God casts our sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. He forgets it. I can't. I have the same problem you do. I go to do something, stepping out in faith. And the adversary, the devil, that voice that I told Raven about, that voice says, you will never survive this. You will fold like a cheap suit. You're going to let God down as you always do. Why bother? Those against you far outnumber those who are for you. That was a year ago I heard that voice. I said, it doesn't matter. If I have the Lord, I have all I need. Because that day, when the depression lifted at the reading of the making of a man of God, I, I recall that the Lord brought me to the passage where he said, when you're going to the court of law with your adversary, agree with him. 
I thought, what a fascinating passage. Satan's going, you're a loser, you're pathetic, you did this, you did that. He's got the whole list of all the stuff you've ever done. I'm like, I know, I lived it. I can't forget it either. And he's telling you, he's reminding you. I'm like, yes, I agree with you. All of it's true. I own it. I agree. I'm a three-dimensional loser. Add whatever else you want. There's things about me I don't even know. Tell me what it is. I agree. I know God put me in the pulpit because he wants to confound the wisdom of the wise. So he takes the stupidest guy and he puts him here so everyone can go, if he can be saved, anyone can. I get it. (laughs) Thanks. And as I get to the court of law, my adversary is prepared. He's got the evidence. He presents it to the judge. I turn to my attorney, my advocate. And I go, he's got a case. He goes, I know. I'll handle it. Kind of like Robert Tyler on steroids, my attorney now. He doesn't lose. Good luck, Ventura County. (laughs) So my attorney walks up to the judge and says, Dad? He says, yes, my son. He said, all those things that the adversary says are true. They're all listed. You can see the dates and the times. And in the last six minutes, he's added more. (laughs) But if you'll notice, Dad, none of them hold my client, my child, my son, guilty because it's all been covered and paid for by my blood. And the father says, case dismissed, son. And I'm set free. He bled and died, but the grave couldn't hold him because the grave is only for dead men and my Savior's alive. And David made me realize that as he invoked the name of the living God. And now I come to the place where I would just say to all of you that in your seat are elements, communion elements. The top is bread and the bottom is the cup. It's the longest running meal in world history. It comes out of the Seder or the Passover meal. In your hand is a representation of the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world to set you free from the slave block of sin, from the lies of the adversary, from the one who tells you God doesn't love you. He's a liar. He's always been a liar. Jesus says, I love you. I am alive and I have overcome the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The Bible says blood must be shed for the remission of sin. The wages of sin is death. I couldn't pay that penalty for you as you're standing on the block with capital punishment awaiting your execution. I can't cover that because I have my own issues. But Jesus left the glory of heaven's throne to be tempted in all ways. But unlike you and me, he was without sin. And when he died, the grave couldn't hold him. It could hold Tutankhamun. His grave is full. But you have come to understand the treasure of an empty tomb. Our God is alive. As you hold those elements in your hand, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Because if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, he is the savior of the world, he's the way, the truth, and the life, that bread and that cup testify that it was his body broken and his blood shed for you. He had you on his mind when he endured the Via Dolorosa, the way of pain, the cross, the humiliation. He came to set you free. In a world being ever enslaved, he's come to set you free and say, you've been created in my image. And so we say, God, not only have you died for us, but we want to live for you. I want you to be not just my savior, but my king. For in having you as my king, when I go to the depression, all I need but do is honor the words of the angel and see the place where they laid you. It is empty. My king is alive. If you're feeling down or defeated, hopeless, weak, unloved, I know that feeling. You feel guilty. 
But in your hand is the secret. He's going to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You receive that by faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You don't have to earn it. He's giving it to you. When I realized my God is alive, the depression lifted in my life. I was so deeply touched by what the Lord had done that I began to pour into his word and live by his precepts. I came to realize that as you apply restraint towards those things that enslave you and you operate by the laws of nature and nature's God, you, you find freedom and you, you find abundance. And, and the youth group exploded and my heart was filled and I began to grow in the things of God and get my legs underneath me to see this is a calling of the Lord and that guy's a liar. I'm standing here because I didn't listen to his voice, I listened to that one and the ping pong ball stopped and I said, Lord, you are alive. You are the truth. And I gave him my heart and the youth group exploded because the kids were looking at someone who was real. And there was hope. And the youth group, I remember 1999 to 2000, they called it Y2K, they thought the entire world was gonna burn because of some computer glitch and everyone was scared, kind of like, you know, a virus that has a 99.9% survival rate. And they had surrendered their entire lives and bowed down and they were scared and they're going to move to Montana and build a fence with, you know, electricity in their AK-47 or AR-15, excuse me, and your canned goods. And that was, the, that was the world. And I told them, I said, look, these kids want to go worship the Lord on New Year's. And the parents were like, no, we can't do this. The whole world's going to burn. I'm like, let them go because the valley will burn. They'll be up in the mountain looking at it burning and they'll be safe. I'm like, well, you do have a point there, but can you get him back in time to go to Montana? And I'm like, you're their parents? There's no wonder this generation has no heroes. And these kids fearlessly went up on the mountain and they were worshiping that night. It was one of the most powerful moves of God's spirit I've ever seen. So many of the kids, the, 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 the sanctuary was packed to capacity and so many kids are in full-time ministry as a result of that night. It was one of the most profound moves of God's spirit. In the midst of it, the camp director, Jeff, comes up and says, look, we're, we're past the curfew time. The, the county, we gotta shut it down. The kids are like, no, and they shut it down and they honored the Lord. They all went back to their cabins praising the Lord. They had little micro services in their cabins. And as, as I'm weeping, overwhelmed by God's goodness, one of the female counselors comes up and says, Pastor Rob, Savannah's crying. I'm like, Savannah, crying? She's my key youth group kid, beautiful California blonde, stunning. She, she loved the Lord and she had done babysitting and all, odd jobs to raise money to bring some of her you know, public school classmates to camp. I mean, that's the kind of kid she was. She put on an agape club at her school, amazing kid. And, and, and I, I'm sh stunned she's crying because most of the kids she brought, I think all of them came to the Lord. And, and I walk up and go, hey, kiddo, what's going on? She's like, Pastor Rob, I, I'm not upset. I'm not crying because I'm upset. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with joy. God is so good. And at that moment, I'm like, you are so right. I got choked up. I said, you know, Savannah, God is so good. She goes, he really is. I go, I know he is. She goes, no, you don't. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yeah, Savannah, I do. <laughs> no, you don't. At this point, I'm a little irritated. <laughs> What's the Scottish word? I'm pissed. I go, Savannah, you have no idea how much I know how good God is. She goes, you don't know how good God is. I go, you got some explaining to do because you're kind of getting on my nerves. She goes, Pastor Rob. Raven? How do you know that name? It's me. No, it isn't. Raven had dark hair and a boy. She's like, I dyed it. And I was in the psych ward and I called on the Lord. And when I got out, the youth group was big. And I was in the back and you had the multi-level seating and I brought kids with me and I knew the first time you saw me you didn't recognize me. She said, I know you don't know how good God is. I said, well, I do now. <laughs> I felt like David holding up the head of Goliath because as I looked at Savannah, the perspective the tomb was no longer empty to the point of depression. The tomb was empty because my God is alive. 
And he did that for my precious Savannah. And he was living in her. That's Easter. Our God is alive. He awaits touching you. Receive him. Don't be 18 inches from the discovery that will change your life. Let it travel from your head to your heart. Choose this day whom you'll serve. God has come to set you free. The testimony of salvation is that you take that communion today. If Jesus is your Lord, you take that communion. He is your savior, you take that communion. You receive him, paid in full, to telestai. It awaits you, that gift. That's, that's what the empty tomb has provided you. Freedom, salvation, life, hope, joy, power, love, and a sound mind. Let me pray and I'll ask the worship team to come up. We'll take communion together. Oh, one last thing before we pray. Lockdowns don't work. Lord, we thank you for this gift of salvation that is found in no other name but that of Jesus Christ. For he's the only, under na the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. He's come to set us free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, exclusive, you and no other. And this day as we hold that element, those elements that you have given us, this gift of communion to commune with you and be one with you your body broken your blood shed that we would be set free that the penalty for our sin would be covered and no longer would the grave hold us and as our God is alive so are we Lord that empty tomb reminds us of what matters most to you you've come to give us peace beyond our circumstances you created us not for time but for eternity and that grave is no longer our destiny. We are eternal in the heavens as we receive you as our savior. And so Lord, thank you for bearing the weight of our sin on that cross that separated us from you, Father. But now you send us into a future in which you have defeated death and we receive that life as we partake in this great gift of communion. We praise you, we thank you, and we love you for being the savior who has set us free. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. The way you take communion is the bread first, cup second, because the body had to be broken before the blood could be shed. If you screw it up, you're still going to heaven. And as you finish taking communion, join with the worship team, stand, and let's worship this King of kings and this Lord of lords. Happy Easter, everybody. He is risen. God bless you all. Let's worship.